All right, let us, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning as we uh, try to decipher the meanings of all of the things that we have read thus far. Uh, help us to really open our minds and our hearts, not so much to the details, but to the message, which is the most important part. Uh, give us some insight as to how this message uh, works as part of your plan of salvation and how we fit into it. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. We've come more or less to the end of First Isaiah. Chapter 39 sort of ends his writings. And it's interesting in a way because it almost sounds like a relief. I'm going to read from another book here. And the way it's spelled out is that the writer of this book is almost giving a sigh of relief. Well, I'm glad these 39 chapters are over with. It says, after working our way through 35 uh, chapters of uh, prophetic oracles, the historical narratives of chapters 35 through 39 come as a most welcome change of pace. On one level, they are easy to understand, but on another, they are often misunderstood. For one thing, although they call themselves historical, they are not strictly objective reports of factual information as modern history strives to be. As history, they are more like the histories of Shakespeare, similar to Richard III or Henry V, which tells us more about Elizabethan England than the days in which the events were believed to have occurred. These Isaiah narratives tell us more about the days of Josiah than the days of Hezekiah. Now, I don't know if that's meaningful to you or not, but in a way, what it's saying here is that up through chapter 35, as you found out already, the writings of Isaiah have both been in mostly poetic format with exaggerations and uh, a great deal of of emphasis on uh, the exaggeration of who is right and who is wrong. That is, the whole idea that the leaders of Israel are wrong, God is right, and God is going to get his way. And that is true. And that is kind of how we have to look at it. We're going to get into that a little bit more later on. The other interesting thing is that chapters 35 and 36 are almost word for word repeated in the second book of Kings, which I'm sure all of you have read. Uh, But in addition to that, this little handout here shows that there is a third version of these same events. 
a little uh, illustration here on the left is a six-sided clay figure which embeds the information uh, that is the essence of chapters 36 through 39 and the same for uh, the second book of Kings with minor variations and those variations really depend on which viewpoint uh, or who was the victor. Obviously this one was written by uh, the king of Assyria's scribes and naturally points out that he for the most part, was the victor. Uh, the second book of Kings has a slightly different variation, and the one that we've read here in Isaiah uh, has its own minor variations. So, which one is the correct one? Well, they all have their own interpretations, and they're all correct to some degree. There are the differences are relatively minor. All right. And it's the same thing as if three people went to uh, a major event and all gave their own opinions as to what that event was all about and its significance. So you have that kind of variation in these three chapters. I don't think that the differences make that much are that important. Okay. Again, in all of the books of the Old Testament, it's not so much the details, it's the message that really counts. When you get to the New Testament, it's a little bit different because they're written from a different point of view, uh, they're written for a different purpose, and in a much different style. So, Old Testament writings is really important if you look at the message. I was talking to somebody not too long ago uh, who studied the prophets uh, in a, uh, let's say, a, a Protestant uh, Bible study program. Very sincere, very well done, and so forth. But the instructor there emphasized the kings and made everybody uh, memorize all of the kings of both the north and the south in the order of their reign. Well, what good does that do anybody you know, at this time and age? It's important that you take a few of those people and know kind of when they uh, were king and what went on there. But as far as knowing everything in their particular order, and the date and the, you know, what good does that do to enlighten or enhance our faith? And so my way of teaching is get the message because that will help you then interpret the rest of it and put it all together. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay. Before we get started in going over these three chapters, I'm going to do it rather quickly because there's some other more important things that I want to get on to. Anybody have any questions before we get started? Okay. Uh, these are all rather short chapters, 
but they do have some important details in them that I would like to go through. Okay. All right. The first one is how many people would like to explain how to pronounce this king of Assyria's name? Sennacherib. All right. Sennacherib. Yeah. Okay. Now, as they would do in elementary school now, boys and girls, let's all pronounce it together. Sennacherib. Okay. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah was the son of King Ahaz, okay, or Ahaz. <clears throat> Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went up against all the fortified cities of Judah. Now, remember, this is towards the end of the 8th century. It is after he has conquered and virtually destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay. So, he was so successful in that part, at least according to his way of thinking, that he decides to go against the southern kingdom of Judah. All right, And he does it by attacking the coastal cities as well as those on the eastern front, from both sides, you might say. But sometimes when you spread your uh, resources too thinly, it doesn't always work, okay? And in this case, he was not totally successful. From the Kish, the king of Assyria sent his commander with a great army to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. When he stopped at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field, now why all those details? It is because this was the main source of water to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is on a plateau. So it has no uh, natural water sources. It must import or pump water from some other location. And that is what is here. By capturing the uh, conduit of the water source, he is able to really cut off, you might say, the natural resources and the needs, the most important need of the city. And that's what he's trying to do. When he stopped at the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller field, there came out to him the master of the palace, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shibna. We ran into those two guys before, um, described. And the chancellor. Joah, son of Ashbah. Aren't those lovely names? The commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, Thus says the great king of Assyria, On what do you base this trust of yours? In other words, Hezekiah was a good guy, one of the few uh, good kings at this time period. He destroyed a lot of the... uh, pillars, uh, the high places and things that Ahaz, his father, had set up uh, to worship pagan gods. He tried to do the right thing, but he was not a strong person 
uh, in himself, nor was he a strong leader. And so he was not that successful, although he had a fairly long reign of 29 years. Okay. Do you think mere words substitute for strategy and might in war? And that is because Hezekiah said that he would appeal uh, to the God of Israel for protection. In whom then do you place your trust that you rebel against me? Do you trust in Egypt that broke reed of a staff which pierces the hands of anyone who leans on it? That is what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is all who trust in him. Or do you say to me, it is in the Lord our God we trust. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Commanding Judah and Jerusalem, worship before this altar. Now, make a wager with my Lord, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. If you are able to put riders on them, how then can you turn back even a captain? One of these least servants of my Lord, trusting as you do in Egypt or chariots or horses, did I come up to destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself said to me, go up and destroy that land. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within earshot of the people who are on the wall. Why would he say that? Hmm? They could understand, and they're frightening the, the people. Yeah. Then Eliakim and Shebna, Joanne, said to the commander, oh, I'm sorry, I read that. Uh, but the commander replied, was it to your Lord and to you that my Lord sent me to speak these words? Was it not rather to those sitting on the wall who with you will have to eat their own, <clears throat> you know, we'll skip that part of it, Listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. And do not let Hezekiah induce you to trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely rescue us, and this city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. And of course, he's saying this to the people in general. All right. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me and surrender to me, each of you, from your vine, uh, I'm sorry, eat each of you from your vine, each from your own fig tree, drink water, eat from your own well, until I arrive and take you to the land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah seduce you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? What are the gods of Hamath? And are, are the gods of whatever here? You'll have to excuse me. I just don't pronounce some of these words very well. These unusual names. 
Where are the gods of Samaria? Remember, the gods of Samaria or Samaria now has been totally destroyed. Have you saved Samaria from my power? How among all the gods of these lands ever, or who among all of the gods of these lands have ever rescued their land from my power? That the Lord should have saved Jerusalem from my power. But they remained silent and did not answer at all. For the king's command was, do not answer them. Hezekiah, in other words, told the people, do not answer him. Then the master of the palace, Eliak, son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and scribe, and the chancellor, etc., came to Hezekiah with their garments torn and reported to him the the words of the commander. Hmm. You will see throughout the Old Testament this whole idea of tearing garments. I think even in the for those of you who saw the Passion of the Christ, uh, the high priest tore his garments, you know, from... And, of course, that's a sign uh, of great anguish, um, sort of uh, spiritual pain, you might say, um, and something must be done about it. Okay. Because garments, of course, in those days were all handmade, and very expensive. When Hezekiah heard this, he tore his garments, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the master of the palace, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to tell the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Thus says Hezekiah, A day of distress and rebuke. A day of disgrace is this day. Children are due to come forth, but the strength to give birth is lacking. Children, you know, that's sort of a metaphor in a way. What you're saying is, or what he's saying here, is life is going on, but we have very little to look forward to. Perhaps the Lord your God will bear the words of the commander whom his Lord, the king of Assyria, sent to taunt the living God and will rebuke him for the words which the Lord your God has heard. So, lift up a prayer for the remnant that is here. Hezekiah is saying this now to to Isaiah. When the servants of King Hezekiah had come to Isaiah, he said to them, he said to them, all right, now, who said what to what? When you translate a lot of Jewish writings, the Hebrew uh, did not have the personal pronouns as we do today. And so, in the translation, you're going to have a lot of he's and him's and so forth, and you have to kind of figure out, well, now this he belongs to so-and-so, and this him belongs to somebody else. Okay. <clears throat> says, when the servants of Hezekiah had come to Isaiah, he said to them, Isaiah said to the servants, okay, tell this to your Lord, Hezekiah, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, do not be frightened by the words you have heard from Assyria, by which the deputies of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now here is God speaking through the prophet. I am putting in him such a spirit that when he hears a report, a certain report, he will return to his land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his hand. When the commander on his return heard that the king of Assyria had withdrawn from Lachish, he found him besieging Lebanon. The king of Assyria heard a report Taraka, uh, king of Ethiopia, Ethiopia, had come out to fight against you. Again, he said, mes- sent messengers to Hezekiah to say, Thus shall you say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by saying, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. You certainly you certainly have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all of the land. They put them under the ban. And you are to be delivered. Did the gods of the nations whom my fathers destroyed deliver them? Gozen, Herod, Respa, and the whatever. Where are the, where are the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad? or the king of uh, the cities of whatever here, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned on the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. It is you who made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words Sinatra has sent to taunt the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their land. They gave their gods to the fire. They were not gods at all, but the work of human hands. Wood and stone, they destroyed them. And therefore, O Lord God, our our God, save us from this man's power, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Again now, this is God speaking through the prophet. I lost my place here. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you have prayed concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I have listened. 
This is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, laughs you to scorn, O virgin daughter of Zion. Behind you she wags her head, daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have insulted and blasphemed, at whom you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, at the Holy One of Israel. Through the mouths of your messengers, you have insulted the Lord when you said, With my chariots I went up to the top of the peaks, to the recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its lofty cedars, its choice cypresses. I reached the furthest shelter, the forest ranges. I myself dug wells and drank foreign water, drying up the rivers of Egypt beneath the soles of my feet. Have you not heard? A long time ago, I prepared it. From days of old, I planned it out. Kind of circle that or underline those, that verse 26, if you will. Because I want to bring that up in a little while. Now I have brought it about. You are here to reduce fortified cities to heaps of ruin. Their people powerless, dismayed, and distraught. They are plants of the field, green growth, thatch on the rooftops, grain scorched by the east wind. I know when you stand or sit, when you come or go, and now you rage against me. Because you rage against me and your smugness has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and make you leave by the way you came. This shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat the aftergrowth. Next year what grows of itself. But in the third year, sow and reap plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The remaining survivors of the house of Judah shall again strike root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem shall come a remnant, and from Zion survivors, the zeal of the house, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. And therefore, thus says the Lord, about the king of Assyria. He shall not come as far as this city, nor shoot there an arrow, nor confront it with a shield, nor cast up a siege against it. By the way he came, he shall leave, never coming as far as this city. Oracle of the Lord, I will shield and save this city for my own sake, and the sake of David, my servant. And then the angel of the Lord went forth and struck down 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. Early the next morning, there they were, all those corpses dead. Now I thought all corpses are dead, are not? Hmm. 
So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp, departed, returned home, and stayed in Nineveh. When he was worshipping in the temple of his god, uh, Nishrak, his sons struck him down with a sword and fled to the land of Ararat. His son reigned in his place. So, the promise of God, the God of Israel, has come true and saved Jerusalem and Judah from the hand of the king of Assyria. And this is true throughout history. Throughout history, even though Judah or Israel in general have uh, been disobedient, have strayed far from the teachings of Moses, teachings of the Ten Commandments, and any of the commands of God, God has always protected them because of his plan of salvation. Now, the rest of these stories, I'm sure that you've all read. Um, Hezekiah, of course, the nice little story about his being blind and uh, or blinded and ill and so forth, and then given 15 more years, etc. Okay, um, I'm sure you've all read that. The important thing that I really want to get into is this plan of salvation, because we cannot separate, you might say, God's plan from the things that we read about in Scripture, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament. This plan, as I wrote up here, never ends. Even though the time of Isaiah has ended, God's plan of salvation continues. Now, I dare say that many of you have probably never fully understood or understand what God's plan of salvation is. Let's be honest and let me know by hands how many people really understand what God's plan of salvation is all about. Well, that's all right. I kind of felt that because looking back at my own Catholic education, I don't think I ever even heard that phrase discussed. And yet, when you think about it, God didn't sprinkle, you know, Adam and Eve and uh, a few people on the earth and said, all right, go to it, boys and girls, you're on your own. Obviously, there was a purpose and a plan. Remember, I think we talked right about it in the first or second lesson, that God has only one need. And that need is to love, to share his love, and he has to share it with somebody. Okay? All right? Well, it's often said that he shares it with the Father and the Son. Well, he is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's true, but that there's only one God, okay? So you can't use that uh, 
when talking about sharing love, love has to be shared with somebody outside of you. All right? And therefore, God created mankind. And even though mankind is less than a God, as one of the Psalms says, Psalm 8, says that mankind is a little less than a God, but more than all of other creation, God knew that mankind would sin. Just like you know that your children are not going to be perfect, but you have them anyways because you want to have that experience and someone to love in an intimate way. And so, when mankind comes in, and this is where the Adam and Eve story comes about, mankind sins. Well, God knew this, all right, right from the very beginning. If you go back and read the story of Adam and Eve, and when you think about it, the stories of Adam and Eve, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are really marvels in a way of spiritual writing because these are allegories. These are not true history. They were written long after the books of uh, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, and so forth, uh, Exodus, of course, in order to give the Bible a beginning. We think, and we're not certain, but we believe that the priest Ezra, in around the 5th century, brought all of the writings, the historical writings, uh, that were uh, developed, you might say, up to that particular time, and sort of brought them together. Remember, uh, I mentioned, I think it was last week or the week before, that there was a little group in the south, southern part of uh, Israel and Judah, uh, called the Yahwist group. They started to write their histories. And in the northern uh, group, uh, there was some people called the Elohist, and they started to write their histories. Well, Ezra began in the 5th century to put these together. That's why you have two different versions, you might say, of the creation story. You have a couple different versions of uh, some of the other stories. Uh, And it's because he probably felt, well, this is such beautiful writings. Why just choose one or the other? So he puts both in. That's not too important right now. The whole idea of the book of Genesis and the beginning is that we learn right from the beginning that God needs to have a way to rectify this breach that is created by sin. Because God is perfect, and I think we've underlined that in another part of this book, and because of mankind's sin, that sin has to be purged in order to stand before God when we are dead and go to heaven, or want to go to heaven. 
and those who totally reject God all down through history are setting themselves outside of this great gift. So, as time goes on, God has to have a way of setting up and developing a sacrifice or an offering back to God for the sins of mankind in order to satisfy this breach. But nothing that mankind has is perfect enough to satisfy that. Because God has given mankind everything that there is in one form or another. And therefore, mankind has nothing of his own outside of God that is worthy of God or worthy of a sacrifice good enough to satisfy the breach. And therefore, because of God and his divine love and wanting to protect his creation, whom he still loves in spite of their sin, he sets up this plan of salvation. Beginning with Abraham, but actually beginning all the way back with Adam and Eve. In the story of Adam and Eve, after uh, Adam and Eve sinned by taking the apple, and believe me, it wasn't a sin because of the apple. Forget the apple part of it, okay? It was sin because they disobeyed a direct command of God. And some people have said to me, well, wasn't that a trap? You know, he sets this beautiful apple tree up in the middle of, the, of this Garden of Eden says, don't eat it, boys and girls, you know, because if you do, you'll die. Wasn't that a trap? No. It represented boundaries. It represented boundaries. Okay? Mankind has to have boundaries for their own good, for the idea that mankind has to know what is right and wrong, whether he or she obeys that and lives by it, but at least mankind has to have boundaries. And that's what this tree of uh, the good and evil thing in the Garden of Eden represented. All right? But the conversation, you might say, that is written in the book of Genesis, I think, is, is marvelous. Because it says, God says to the serpent, why did you do this? And the serpent can't give a reasonable answer, a good answer. You know? And of course, God says to Adam, why did you do this? And he blames it on his wife. You know, well, uh, That's an indication, again, of the culture in which this is written because women were always kind of put down, unfortunately. All right. But then God says to the serpent that he will always be condemned. Why a serpent? 
Why didn't he use a cat or a dog or a giraffe or something? Anybody know? Because it goes all the way back to the way that the people in the 5th century thought about the Egyptians. Remember, the Egyptians worshipped serpents. And therefore, it was a put-down, you might say, on the Egyptians' value of serpents or the, as gods. But, you, but God says to the serpent, you know, you will now be condemned. And then he says to Adam and Eve, you will also be punished. But remember, I will eventually bring forth a woman and her seed will then lead you out of this predicament. Okay. The idea of the woman and her seed in Genesis is of course a prediction of Christ and his mother. And in the interesting and sort of coincidental in the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, it mentions again the woman and her seed. Going forward now with Abraham God has to begin to put this plan of salvation into some form of natural order. And so he calls Abraham and his wife Sarah, changes their name to indicate that they have a very important part in this plan by beginning a new family, all right? Beginning a new race out of their particular uh, physical family. And that is through Isaac, their son. And then Isaac has two children, one of whom becomes Jacob, the son or the father of the twelve tribes of Jacob. So little by little, this family is developed and grows. Why? In order to establish the beginnings of God's message, their purpose, and the love God showers on them by protecting them and guiding them and directing them is all for the purpose of mankind being eventually brought back into the good graces of the Father in heaven. But in order to do that, they had to develop a base for their beliefs. Mankind has to have beliefs. Has to have something to hang on to. Whether they like it or will admit it or not, that is part of our nature. And so, through the very beginning of the Jewish nation, we developed, first of all, the Ten Commandments. And then, all of the rules, regulations, etc., that develop up through the Jewish people to the time of Christ. The idea of God being the central authority and the central protector of all of these people 
uh, is embedded in the, the first covenant that God makes with Abraham, which had three parts. Remember, at the time this was made, Abraham and his wife were quite elderly, way beyond childbearing, and yet God makes a covenant with them that promises descendants, land. Remember, they were nomadic people. They moved around a lot, but they wanted him, they wanted, God wanted them uh, to begin to settle down. The first uh, evidence of that settling down was in Egypt. They spent anywhere from 250 to 400 years. We are not sure of the exact amount of time. But in Egypt, developing and becoming together as a clan or as a nation with um, the God, the one true God of Israel uh, being their protector and their <clears throat> the essence of their faith. So, Again, as we, as we go on and move, we have God bringing the people back from Egypt under the hand of Moses and giving them the Ten Commandments. And then as Moses dies before they actually move into the promised land, he establishes the idea of judges. And judges are not in the same uh, meaning of judge as we have today. Uh, these were more or less like mayors or, or governors of various tribes. Okay. And they came about at different times uh, for different reasons, different purposes, covering different tribes and territories. All right, But they were the first, you might say, beginnings of structure. And then as time went on, we begin the time of the prophets. Again, there is no structure uh, as we think of structure in Judaism. But we have laws. And the laws were kept as best they could uh, from what the people understood. You had uh, a few teachers uh, but the prophets were really the beginning of the essence of structure and um, of scripture. Prior to that, prior to the prophets coming along, you had these two other groups, the Eloist and the Yahwist, writing history. But it was the prophets who began to write sacred scripture. At the same time as the prophets began to do their writing, you had a third group called the Deuteronomists beginning to put together not so much history, but a listing of all of the sayings of Moses. And they would write them in the ways of laws and rules, and regulations. So, although they were not intended to be sacred at the time they were written, they gradually became sacred as the people uh, 
began to observe them, but that is long after this time period that we're beginning to talk about here. Um, you have the prophets. As I said, there were 15 literary prophets. There were a couple historical prophets before that, Isaiah, I mean, Elijah and Elisha, but they did not leave anything in writing. The prophets were the first to write down things that were really sacred because they represented a message directly from God through the prophet himself. All right? And this was true for all of them. All of the prophets talked pretty much in the same way and about the same message because they were the only ones who had any real uh, accepted authority in the Jewish people during this time period. Okay. This time period really that we're talking about now is from the time of King David up to uh, the Babylonian exile. A period of roughly 500 years. All right. During this time, uh, Judaism is beginning to develop a little bit of form, but there is still no leadership, uh, there is no rigid structure, uh, it is just pretty much a loose uh, concept uh, that they are observing. Uh, so, I'm going to leave that part of this here because I want to go on and talk about a few other things. And the reason I want is because at the time of the Babylonian captivity, which it's, uh, existed from the year 587 B.C. to uh, around 539 B.C., okay, a period of roughly 50 years. That is a time when Judaism changed dramatically. primarily through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel, who was carted off to Babylon about ten years before. Remember, well, King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and, Israel and Judah about the year 597 B.C., but did not conquer it spent a great deal of time and effort, uh, a lot of bloody sacrifice, etc., but did not conquer Jerusalem. But he did cart off a number of prisoners, one of whom was the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel then went to Babylon, but was held in great honor, you might say, and became a teacher of the people the prisoners that were taken. Later, ten years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and conquers uh, Jerusalem and destroys it entirely uh, and takes most of the people back to Babylon, all right, where they remain for 50 years. Jerusalem, in the meantime, becomes virtually a wasteland. The temple is destroyed. The temple 
was built by Solomon and represented God's presence among his people. It represented really the physical appearance of the first covenant, which again was made by God with Abraham and then renewed down the line with all of the rulers. But God made a promise to David, King David, that there would always be somebody in the line of David's family uh, and uh, descendants that would be ruling over Jerusalem and Judah forever. Uh, That did not really happen unless we use Jesus Christ uh, as the last of the house of David, which he really was, but that's another thing. All right. So we're up to the point of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and this is where Jew, Jeru, I'm sorry, Judaism changes dramatically. And what I want to do is kind of leave you hanging there. Uh, Because when we get into part two of the study of the book of Isaiah, uh, which we'll be uh, getting in January, uh, we then pick up where things left off. In fact, if you go to chapter 40, I'm just going to read the first The first couple of verses here says, Comfort, give comfort to my people, says God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has ended, that her guilt is expiated, that she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. Uh, and I just want to... Not only is the style of writing changing, because it is obviously written by somebody else other than first Isaiah, but the purpose and the meaning of the writing has now changed. You have more narrative, less poetic writing, but it is in a uh, sense of receiving back these people now from Israel, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, from Babylon to Israel and beginning a whole new phase of Judaism. During this time in Israel, in Babylon, the people finally wake up to the fact that they were pretty bad, you might say, uh, for the several hundred years before they were carted off to Babylon. And now they're going to change. And we'll get into what these changes were and how they affected the people of of Judah because that's where they came back to. And they were then known as Judahites for a number of years. uh, And then uh, gradually that became the word Jew. All right. So I want to leave it there, but keep in mind 
this whole idea of God's plan of salvation is working and is still working in the changes. For example, uh, do you think that our new Pope Francis is just there by coincidence uh, because a hundred and I think it was a hundred and eight cardinals that elected him? No. That's part of God's plan. And I think the changes that are going to come about is very much in the same order as Isaiah. He's going to say, you people are in danger of sliding down a slippery slope to paganism. Because that is the way society is going. Going right back to what it was at the time of Isaiah. Because people ignored God. They were so caught up with their own progress, <coughs> their own riches, uh, and their own smarts, that they felt they didn't need God. And we're seeing the very same thing today. So, the hand of God is working. And what we need to do is to decide as to what side are we on? And how can we make some change if we band together and make our voices heard? They will be heard. And we will be accounted for. But if we ignore that, God's going to ignore us. It's important that we really give some thought to that before we slide down the slope even more. Who are we voting for? What do they really stand for? I've had people, or I've heard people say that some of the reasons they vote for are just plain asinine, pardon the expression. I heard one woman say that she had uh, voted for a, a certain candidate because he was so good looking. <laughs> and that, oh, no, that's just too much. Your vote should count with, in the same way that your beliefs count. And your vote should count towards people who believe the way you believe. People say, well, the separation of church and state, baloney. The state would not exist if it wasn't for the church. Right now, I am involved in teaching a group of people from a book called How the Catholic Church Saved Western Civilization. And it goes through a lot of detail explaining that throughout the history of modern Western civilization, if it wasn't for the church, we would still be pagans. We would still be in a uncivilized organization. But it was the church who brought civilization through the tough times of the Dark Ages and even through the riches of the Western Renaissance. So you've got to really think about who are you voting for 
and what do they stand for. I'm not telling anybody what to write or, or what to vote for, but I'm telling you that you've got to, as Christians, as Catholics, you must understand that your belief system, your church is telling you certain things that are right and wrong, and that if you're if the people that you vote for do not stand for the same things, then you should not vote for them. And some people will say, well, I voted for the lesser of two evils. Uh, that doesn't always work either, but uh, sometimes you don't have any choice, I guess. Yeah. All right. I want to go on to another subject. And I'm leaving you here, I know, sort of hanging in a way with this plan of salvation. But the rest of it comes really in our next uh, part that takes place uh, beginning in January. All right. The next thing I would like to talk about is this home reading assignment. Right? The last page All right, this is what we're talking about now, okay? As you all know, the readings at our Masses, consists of a first reading, which is generally out of the uh, Old Testament, except that currently uh, it isn't, and that's true occasionally. It will not be out of the Old Testament, uh, but most of the time it is. Then you have a psalm, which sort of complements uh, the first reading. Then you have a second reading, which is out of the various letters of the New Testament. And then you always have a gospel reading. All right. Over a three-year period, divided by years, beginning in the first Sunday of Advent, which is only two or three weeks away, you have a new cycle beginning, and it runs, of course, through the rest of that year. Cycle A will begin this coming uh, last Sunday in November, whatever that is, the date. What I have here are the Sundays over a three-year period in which the prophet Isaiah is the first reading. All right? So, over a period of 156 Sundays, three years, 39 or 38 of those are 
headed by the uh, passage from the book of Isaiah. Cycle A is dominated by the gospel writer Matthew. Cycle B is obviously dominated by Mark. And cycle C is dominated by Luke. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be occasionally one of the other gospel writers put in there. You might say, well, what happened to John? Okay. John, the gospel of John is used primarily at Easter, during Lent and Easter, but occasionally at other times when there may be some special occasion. So, what I would like you to do is to take one or more of the passages from Isaiah, read it thoroughly, make sure you understand it, and then read the corresponding second and gospel reading to see how they complement each other. You can do two or three or four of these. Now, the one thing that you'll probably notice is if you look down these this list, two pages, there are very few quotations out of first Isaiah. That is the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Most of them come from second Isaiah. That is chapter 40 through 55. 50, yeah, 55. Okay. And then there's a number out of uh, the third Isaiah, which is 56 through 66. Okay. Whatever it is, I don't really have any preference. If you want to take something out of the other, uh, the later uh, Isaiahs, that's fine. But what I want you to really do is to see uh, and get a good idea as to how there is a connection. Because I dare say when people go to Sunday Mass, most of the time the first reading just flies right over their head. They have no idea what they're talking about. And unfortunately, the readers are not that great as to put any emphasis uh, in the right place. And they just don't read it well. Um, they... Most readers, and forgive me for those of you who are lectors, but most lectors get up there and they open the book for the first time and, and never looked at it before, and they start just reading. Well, that's not the job of the lector. The job of the lector is to proclaim the scripture. Proclaiming is a great deal different than just reading. But, unfortunately, we don't have anybody to teach them what that difference is. So that's another subject, all right? I hope you understand, because it's important in a way, that the Mass is really meaningful to you. 
And that's what this is all about. The idea of understanding the readings and their um, part of, of the Mass. The whole idea is that there is a theme that relates the first reading particularly with the Gospel. The second reading, which is generally from, as I said, letters of the New Testament, is not always directly related in the same way, but it's complementary. So you might have a little problem in seeing that. So I suggest that you go and read, uh, select whatever readings you wish from Isaiah, and then go to the corresponding uh, gospel reading and try to connect those two. What is the theme? Now, next week, when we come in, what I'd like to do is go over some of those, and then I will bring in, as you know, I do the commentary in the bulletin, uh, and I will bring in what I have written to see how they match up. Okay. Not that I'm going to be uh, perfect, and not that mine is the only Not that mine is the only theme that you can take out of this. The problem that we have, the problem that we have with most people who write commentaries on the scriptures, particularly the Sunday Mass, is they'll take one point out of one of the writings and do a whole commentary on that. But that may not be the general theme that runs through all of the readings. And that's what I really want you to see, that there is a general theme running through all of the readings for the Sunday Mass, not the weekday Masses. That's entirely different. Anyone know why we have this three-year cycle? No one knows? Amen. Karen came up with it. Is that through a three-year cycle, particularly if you go to Mass every day, eventually you will cover the essence of the entire Bible. So if anyone, particularly outside of the Catholic, say to you, well, Catholics don't, you know, read the Bible... Say, oh, yes, we do. And every three years, we cover the entire Bible. Now, that doesn't mean we cover it word for word. All right. But we cover the essence, the main stories of all of the Bible over a three-year period. That's the purpose of the three-year cycle. Not necessarily, no. You must be sleepy, that's why. No, there is there is no specific reason. No. No. Yes, ma'am. 
Oh, well, let me go back to your first question. For each cycle, the readings will always be the same. But, you know, cycle A, the readings will be different from cycle B. And those will be different from cycle C. However, you got to remember that these are the synoptic gospels, meaning that they line up and are pretty much the same with some minor exceptions. So you may hear the same reading or the same story, let's put it that way, in two, in two consecutive years, but they're from different gospel writers. But to go back, uh, yes, each cycle A, three years apart, will always have the same readings. Now, the only difference or the only exception to that is when Christmas and Easter fall. Uh, you may, for example, this year we do not have a 34th uh, Sunday in ordinary time. We only have 33 uh because of the way uh, the Christmas season falls. Okay. There will be some minor changes like that, but relatively few. Uh-huh. That's true. And, and Jose has a copy of that workbook up here, the commentary. Unfortunately, most of the readers don't read it. And it's very obvious. It's very obvious. Uh, at least to me, it is. But um, I don't run that part of the church. So. Okay. Yes, Jane? On uh, page 96, yep. the Judaites uh, as the Assyrian, Assyrian Aramaic. Yeah. And this was before Jesus, right? And, uh, oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. And when Jesus came, he spoke Aramaic, and so the people of Jerusalem didn't understand no, the Aramaic was the, by the time of Jesus. What Gene, Gene is saying that at the time that the chapter 36 was written, uh, or the time period about which it was written, uh, the idea of Aramaic was not a common language at the time. But by the time of Christ, now we're talking 700 years later, it became the common language of most people. And Hebrew became uh, the religious, the language of the church or, or the Jewish uh, synagogue, you might say, and was not a common language at that time. And still isn't. Hebrew is spoken uh, in Israel today by the local people, but most of them speak English. All right. And the Hebrew that is spoken in Jerusalem today uh, is mostly Yiddish. Okay. Yiddish is a mixture of Hebrew and German. Okay. Uh, so the common language there is more Yiddish than it is pure Hebrew. Only the Hasidic uh, group within the Orthodox uh, speak pure Hebrew. 
That's right. Yes. You've got a point there. Uh, what she is saying is that there is uh, more than one theme in some of the readings. Not all. Some of the readings are very specific. Uh, but others, there can be more than one theme running through all three. And seldom will you have a priest connect all of those. Um, they'll generally, as I said, zero in on uh, one point and do a whole sermon on that. Again, that's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think you're losing out on the beauty of all of the writings being brought together. That's always been um, important to me, is that we stress all of the the same thing, the theme throughout all four readings. Okay. Any other questions? Well, we've just about exhausted time. Yes, I'm sorry. I really don't know. I'm sorry, I really don't know. Uh, but they are universal. Uh, so they, I obviously come out of Rome. Uh, they were set up after Vatican II, yes. Before Vatican II, that wasn't quite the case. Uh, we didn't have four readings prior to Vatican II. Yeah. Uh, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Woods, I uh, forget his first name. Uh, last name is Woods. Oh, just a moment. Here. Thomas E. Woods, Jr. Any other questions? All right. Let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us to kind of pull apart some of the writings of Scripture so that we can better understand how they fit into today's um, lifestyle in today's livings with all the pressures that we have uh, in society today. Help us to understand your message, the strength and the grace to fulfill it. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to know how we should follow your will rather than the will of society in general. Give us the strength and the grace to live by the moral law that you have embedded in each of us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.